The Second World War ended on the 8th of May 1945, VED. But to historians, the war was won the year before, on the 6th of June 1944, D-Day. On that day, really the decisive battle of World War II was won. When Allied troops took the beaches of Normandy, there was nothing the Nazis could do. Their final surrender was only a matter of time, a matter of uh, not if, but when. But I bet you it didn't actually feel like victory at times to civilians and soldiers in war-torn Europe between those two dates. I mean, Allied forces were still being shot at for another 12 months, many were wounded, many died, waiting for VE Day when the fighting would finally stop. And of course, innocent civilians were still the target of real cruelty. Hitler, knowing his time was up, had issued some of the most harrowing orders to his retreating troops to torment anyone in their path. And people, of course, understood the magnitude of D-Day, uh, but in the day-to-day -day experience, right up to the day when victory in Europe was finally declared, it still felt very much like war. And I start with that because that's how the Christian life feels at times. Christians, in a sense, live between D-Day and V-E Day. D-Day being the day that Jesus died. With his blood, Jesus won for us eternal redemption. By his death, Jesus disarmed Satan and his troops. The decisive battle was won there and then, 2,000 years ago. V-E Day is the day that Christ returns. And it's only a matter of time until the songs and the feasting begin. The final destruction of evil is not a matter of if, but when. But life in between still feels like war, doesn't it? Don't get me wrong, we, we rejoice in his victory, we love the gospel, but we're still in the trenches as it were, we're still ambushed at times by Satan, our enemy, who like Hitler, knowing his end, issues fury-filled orders to cause devastation wherever he can. And that's our struggle, isn't it? Uh, whether it's uh, in the world or in here. And if we're not careful, Christians can lose perspective. So we need to know our enemy and his end in order to know how to live in this age. Now that's what Revelation 12 to 14 actually teaches us. That's why Christ is super kind to give us what we have in this section. The pastoral purpose of this section, you see, is to help us know what life is going to be like between our D-Day of Christ's cross and the V-E-Day of Christ's return, and to apply the promises of both past and future promises to our daily lives. So let me map out where we're going to go with this uh, in this first talk on uh, chapters 12 to 14. We're going to look just at chapter 12 today, and we've got two points. First of all, Satan rages against Christ but Jesus throws him down. This is verses 1 to 12. In verses 1 to 6, we see that Satan's ploy to kill Christ failed. In verses 1 to 4, uh, we're introduced to these two characters, a woman and a dragon. They are symbols, of course, the text says so. They are signs. 
Now the woman represents the people of God, pregnant with their only hope. Verse 1 says she's Israel. At this point anyway, I mean she lives, as we'll see in this passage, beyond the birth of this child that she delivers. So later she comes to represent the church. But here specifically in verses 1 to 6, she represents the Old Testament people of God. And we know that because of the allusion to Genesis chapter 37 and verses 9 to 11, which is Joseph's dream about sun, moon and stars. Um, twelve, the crown of 12 stars, it all draws on Joseph's dream. And it's talking about Israel. Now verse 2 tells us that this woman's about to give birth. And sinful humanity, of course, had been waiting for a, 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 a son ever since uh, God promised a serpent crusher in Genesis 3.15. And hopeless Israel had been waiting for a divine son in particular ever since Isaiah had promised Emmanuel, you know, to us a son is given, to us a child is born. So Israel here is pictured as a woman about to give birth to a child who is the Messiah. So it's Christmas. It's a nativity story. Although I have never seen our Sunday school include a massive seven-headed dragon in the nativity. Uh, maybe next year, David and Margaret. Let's get that happening. In any case, he's here. This dragon represents Satan, the enemy of God and his people. Now, verses 3 and 4 tell us that he's supernaturally powerful. Now, it's not describing exactly what he looks like. He's not smug from the, hob the Hobbit. It's symbolic for us. His size communicates his might. He's enormous. His heads describe the quality of his evil. Seven equals perfect. The crowns describe the extent of his rule in the domain that he's been given. That's the earth, which basically says with ten, he's in charge everywhere. He's got multiple myriads of kingdoms. And the tail sweeping the heavens says he's supernaturally powerful too. That's who he is. But what's he up to? Well, verse 4b tells us what the enemy's ploy is, right? Satan intended to kill the Christ, to kill the child, right? And what a picture we've got in verse 4b, if you look at it with me. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. Maybe you know the story. No sooner had Christ been laid in the manger than Herod had said, kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem. He didn't stop there, of course, from temptation in the desert to Peter's rebuke, from Judas's betrayal to Pilate's crucifixion order. Satan intended to kill Jesus, to stop him from saving the world and overthrowing his earthly domain. But Satan's ploy failed. If you look at verses 5 and 6, this is a kind of episode, it's kind of like when you're watching a movie and somebody, you know, just shuffles in their seat or something like that and accidentally presses the fast forward button. You know, you're at the start of the movie, then all of a sudden, boom, you're at the end of it and you have to spend ages rewinding. That's kind of what verse 5 feels like because we've gone from Bethlehem to Bethany, from the birth of Christ to the ascension of Christ in a verse, in a sentence. Verse 5, the woman gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God to his throne. Birth, ascension, in a matter of moments. But I wonder if you see what this means. What's being communicated here? Why has Satan's ploy failed? 
Well, Psalm 2, quoted here in verse 5, helps us see why. Psalm 2 says that all the conniving coalitions that Satan sets up against God and his Messiah are an absolute joke to God. And they can plan all they like to oust him, but they're absolutely puny. They're also too late. Psalm 2 says so. God basically says, Have, what are you doing? I've already installed my king on Zion, my holy hill, my king, my winner. And when he comes, whoever has not kissed him in friendship and subjection will be like a fragile vase in his hand, smashed to pieces. So Satan's ploy failed because no one can thwart God's plan. Not even the biggest, fiercest, evilest thing in existence. Christ has won the war already. Christ has liberated, liberated us from the oppression of this satanic oppressor. And Christ's victory is impossible to overturn. That's why Satan rages with wrath against the body, Christ's body. Later, he's bruised, he's wincing, mortally wounded, dying a slow death. It's coming, not if, but when. wonder if we believe that. Do we lay hold of that by faith? Does it sometimes feel like Satan has the upper hand? This passage says he doesn't. And verses 7 to 9 prove that. Verses 7 to 9 show us that Satan's actually humiliated in his defeat. Verse 7 introduces this war in heaven. And in verse 7, you've got Michael, a general of angels, hurling Satan and his demon hordes down to the earth. Now, John Milton of uh, Paradise Lost thinks this is the same event that Jesus describes when he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. But it can't be given the relation of this to Christ's incarnation and exaltation. But the point of this battle scene is to help us picture what Christ's triumph actually means for Satan and his demons. Humiliation. Verse 8 shows he's not even strong enough to beat another group of angels, never mind the Lord of hosts, Jesus himself. Verse 9 says, just to be clear, all the names of this and all the kind of aliases, if you like, of this one named and shamed and defeat that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the world astray. You know that one, the one that we're all afraid of. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Like I said, he's not dead, but he is mortally wounded, hurled down to await his fate, not if but when. But he's not only humiliated in defeat, verses 10 to 12 shows that Satan's greatest weapon has been neutralised in this fight. In World War II, what was the enemy's greatest weapon? The Axis forces, what did they rely on most? What caused most damage? Nope, not the Panzer tank. Nope, not the U-boat either. The Messerschmitt BF-109 fighter was hands down the most lethal weapon probably arguably of the second world war right up until d-day but after d-day as german armies retreated and allied forces advanced bombers went in and destroyed depots and airports and messerschmitts and from that point on gained courage in their fight 
Now, what is Satan's primary weapon against us? Well, it's not physical suffering. No, it's not even death. It's not temptation either, though all are in his armory. No, Satan's primary weapon against God's people is accusation. It's accusation. That's what he is. Satan means accuser. That's what he does. Verse 10 accuses us before our God day and night, just as he did with Job. Ah, he only loves you, Job, because you, you only love Job because of the, the things that you give him. Take those things away and he'll curse you like everybody else does. And he does the same with us. You can almost hear him say, so holy God, are you really going to let that sinner, Liam Garvey, into your blistering radiance and not destroy him? Are you going to invite him into your kingdom to share your joy forever when actually his sin deserves hell forever? Well, in other circumstances, Satan would be perfectly justified in his accusation and condemnation. But because of Jesus Christ, because of D-Day, the cross, Satan's accusations no longer fly with God. And verse 11 tells us why. We're winners. We're victorious already in him. His victory was our victory. We share in his triumph. They have triumphed over Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Now, the blood of the Lamb, of course, refers to the cross. The Lamb is Jesus himself. He's the sacrificial Lamb who died instead of us. He paid the penalty for the sin of all who would believe in him. His triumph so complete that when Satan's accusations fly, the Father looks to his right and sees the one who is for us our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, as 1 John 2 says. And I don't know what God does. If he hears the accusations fly, does he look to the advocate and look back, shrug his shoulders and say, paid in full? Well, the word of the testimony is their profession of faith. It's their declaration by lip and life, and in life and in death, actually, that Jesus is our Lord and Saviour. That's why it says they did not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Jesus and their love of him is better than life itself. So great is his glory, so wonderful his salvation. But here, though, is a warning. Even though Satan's accusations no longer fly with God, he still tries it on us. He still launches those fiery darts that were warned about in other parts of the New Testament, those missiles. But because of the gospel, because of Christ's victory, they should be like nothing more than kiddies nerf bullets to us. That's what they should be. But how often do we hear the whispers of the accusations and feel a condemnation that God himself does not agree with and feels like a missile's gone off in us? We know how that feels. I know how that feels. When he whispers things like, you're a joke, aren't you? Call yourself a Christian. When you behave like that, call yourself a pastor. 
Are you kidding me on? Well, why does he still do it? Because accusation leads us to feel the weight and burden of condemnation. And condemnation makes us feel like losers in this fight. And he uses it because he knows that when we actually realise that he's not justified in his accusations, when we remember the gospel and share the triumph of Christ, we, it makes us advance with gospel light on this dark world, like we're some kind of elite commandos taking his gospel elsewhere. I'm taking this illustration way too far, but I, you know what I mean. As Romans 8 verse 1 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Memorize that verse. Strike with that verse. So in 1 to 12, we see, first of all, that Satan's ploy to kill Christ fail. His operation, Operation Devour, was countered by Operation I'm the Lord. Christ triumphed over Satan, and we share in that triumph, but Satan isn't done. He's not dead yet. As the following chapters show, like Hitler in his maddening fury, issuing harrowing orders to retreating troops for the terrorising of everybody in their wake, so Satan, from a position of guaranteed defeat, attacks Christ's body, the church. And this is point two. Satan rages against the church, but Jesus keeps her safe. This is verses 13 to 18. Now, Satan's work here, Satan's pursuit, it's not the work of a winner, but the death throes of a loser. And a sore one at that. In verses 13 to 17, we find Satan's intentions clarified for us in three ways. First of all, by his pursuit. In verse 13, he says he'll pursue God's pe people. Now, Peter, when he talks about what Satan does, says your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He wants to devour us just as he wanted to devour Christ. That's 1 Peter 5, 8. So this pursuit is not some kind of fun-filled chase in the playground. This isn't Tig. This is, this is dinner time in the African heartlands. Think big cat chasing a lanky gazelle for his tea. And the Greek word for pursue in here is used elsewhere in the New Testament for persecution. He intends to have you ostracised, slandered, imprisoned, tortured and killed. We'll get to that next week. Secondly, he says he's going to try and sweep us away to our death by another means. Verse 15, then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. Now the serpent harkens back to Eden. Serpent equals satanic deception, his cunning. So it could be that Satan will try and sweep believers away by false teaching. We've seen that already, especially in the letters to the seven churches, but also in throughout the ages of church history so far. Various heresies have threatened to sweep the church into teaching taught by demons, as Paul calls it, as he writes to Timothy. And thirdly, he not only pursues us and tries to sweep us away with false teaching, verse 17 implies that he's never going to stop. Look at it with me. The dragon was enraged at the woman, 
and went to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to the testimony of Jesus. That's Christians throughout the ages. That's you and me. Generation after generation of those who believe the gospel down through the ages all the way up until Christ comes. Now we who uh, love God's word and want people to know it are told by this that we're hated by him, Satan. And we who hold on to the faith at all times, even in hard times, suffering times, grievous times, we are detestable to him because of that. He hates everything about churches, I guess, except false ones who don't keep God's command and renege on their testimony. Now, all of that sounds pretty scary of his pursuit against us to sweep us away and never, ever stop. It's relentless. But we're not made aware of Satan's schemes in Scripture in order to make us freak out and hide under the bed. No, we're told about his schemes so that we know how to ready ourselves for them, so that we know how to face the fight. As Ephesians 6, 10 and 12 say, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Spiritual warfare is a big deal. Spiritual warfare is a real thing. Learn how to take your stand by learning what the Bible says. But there's a reason even in our passage today in Revelation 12 for us to not be scared and not be afraid of this onslaught from the maddening, furious Satan. And it's this, Jesus keeps his people safe. Three times in the passage we're told that Jesus provides protection for his people. Back in verse 6, interestingly, it was wilderness that God provided for his people. Now, you might think, wilderness, is that not where like lions and wild beasts live? Or sounds like I'm going to die in starvation, of, uh, die of starvation in a place like that. Well, no, that's so maybe we're reading our understanding of wilderness into the passage. But what does wilderness stand for or make you think of in relation to the way that God uses it? Well, the wilderness is a place where God called his people to himself and was personally present with them and provided for them. That's the image that this is meant to convey. So don't think starvation. Think manna. Don't think thirst. Think living water from a rock. Don't think aimless, lost, vulnerable. Think led, guided, protected. Now that's comforting. For this short time, marked by this 1,260 days, again, or three and a half years, or 42 months, whichever one you want to choose, while we wait in this shorter period than it could be for the return of Jesus, we're going to be taken care of. That's a blessing to know that. Secondly, in verse 14, even at the news of this dragon's pursuit, we have the provision of wings. Wings. Now, it's Exodus again. In chapter 19, verse 4 says, uh, it's God speaking. He's, when he's called his people to himself to the mountain where he's going to give them the Ten Commandments from, he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt 
and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. It is a reminder for them that God hears their prayers. He heard the cry of those people in Egypt. He answered by sending a savior in the form of Moses. He performed miraculous signs, brought them through the waters of salvation and brought them to be with him in his presence, in his keeping. And that's the image here. It's a reminder that God loves and keeps those he saves. That's true for us as much as it was true for Israel back then. And let that encourage you, brothers and sisters. Let these words encourage you, even as we're made aware of Satan's schemes. Satan makes war on us, but we stand in the place of victory. We share in the triumph of Christ. His victory is ours. The war is already won. Christ has dealt the decisive blow and has, as Colossians 2 says, disarmed the powers and authorities made a, and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by his cross. And believe it, that VE day of his return will come and it will be glorious. But while we wait, while we live in between, Let's take Jesus at his word when he said, the gates of hell will not prevail against us. For if God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.